As a five or six-year-old kid, I can remember living in central uh, Cameroon in a small town there. I can remember what we called, what was everybody called, Juju, walking down the main street of the city. And what we called Juju was this uh, people who were dressed up in uh, uh, sort of a costume, uh, decorative um, clothing. Oftentimes they would have a mask over their face, maybe a, a sort of a, a headdress that they were wearing as well. Sometimes they had some shakers, you know, attached to their legs. Sometimes they were accompanied by other musicians as they'd walk down the main street of the town. And um, sometimes as well other people would accompany them. And what uh, these people represented were the traditional gods of the village leaders. And I would remember, I remember watching these juju uh, walk through the main street of the town probably every month or so. And as a little kid, uh, you know, I would, I would see them walk by. And rumor was that if you didn't bow down to these people, that uh, they would put a curse on you or they would physically harm you in some way. And so I remember as a kid, sometimes, you know, bowing down when these these juju would come close to me, and other times maybe I'd just leave, you know, and, and get away from there. Sometimes I would hide behind other uh, adults or hide, between, you know, in the bushes and kind of peek out. But I want to tell you a story, and I want us to read a remarkable story this morning from Daniel chapter 3, about three men who, contrary to the command of the king of their day, did not bow down and worship his gods. Sometimes maybe this story is thought of as a a children's story, but it is so far from being a children's story. It's a real story. The characters in this account are real. It's a story of three heroic followers of God who stood in defiance to a powerful king and did not give in to the persuasion of the pluralistic society and culture that they lived in. So before we read this account from Daniel chapter 3, let's pray together. God, we are gathered in this room this morning because we are on a journey with you. Many people in this room at different places on their journey. Father, but I would assume most of us are in this room because we want to become fully devoted followers of you, Jesus. So teach us through your word this morning, through your scripture. Conform our hearts, change our thinking, transform us to become more like your son, Jesus. God, this is our prayer. Holy Spirit, use your word to teach us and instruct us this morning. We want to be able to stand and resist the pressure from our culture to conform. And we want to worship you as our God alone and serve you wholeheartedly. So answer my prayer, answer our prayer this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So Daniel chapter 3, it's about two-thirds of the way through your Bible, right after Ezekiel, and I encourage you to continue looking for it if you haven't found it already. Uh, If you didn't bring your Bible, you can follow along on the screen, but we'll start reading verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 90 feet high and 9 feet wide, and set it on the plain of Dura, in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other official, provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image that he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. As they stood before it, He stood before it. 
Then the herald loudly proclaimed, This is what you are commanded to do, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. I mean, what an epic, grand setting that we see here. What an epic story. Now, who is this King Nebuchadnezzar? Well, he's the second king in the Babylonian Empire. And he ruled the empire from 605 B.C. to 562 B.C., about 50 years. Under his reign, Babylon invaded Israel, conquered the country, conquered Jerusalem, took over and destroyed God's temple. And then he took back with him to Babylon some of the Jewish finest individuals. He's one of the most powerful kings in the ancient world. He is smart, he's a warrior, he's rich, and he's proud. And he sets up a statue made completely of gold, a huge statue, nine feet wide and 90 feet tall. And just to give you a visual idea of how tall that is, from the floor of our building right here, right here to the peak of the roof is 67 feet. So you add 23 feet to that and you get 90 feet tall, an image of gold that everyone is called to bow down and to worship. All the high-ranking officials from the empire were present, people of many nations and languages, all of these people that the king had conquered and, and assimilated back into the Babylonian culture. And Nebuchadnezzar says, worship this statue. Now, why was he doing this? He was doing this because he wanted to assimilate all of the people into a common culture, to worship a common God. And in effect, what he was saying, you can worship your own private God in your own private place and do your own thing, but when we are all together, we will all bow and worship my gods, and you'll do that by bowing down to this statue that I have created. As the story continues, everyone was assembled on this wide plain here, and the music started to play, and everybody bowed down, except for three individuals, we're told. Three. And some astrologers were told, see these three individuals, not bowing down to worship this idol, and they come to the king and say, king, do you know that there's three Jewish people that you have set in high authority, in high rank in your government here, and they do not worship your gods, neither do they bow down to the image that you have created. And they come to the king and tell him this. And then we'll keep reading in Daniel chapter 3, verse 13. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn... The flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music. If you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. 
But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. I mean, listen to the challenge of the king to these three men. The question he asked them, don't you worship my gods? Don't you bow down to this image? If you don't bow down, you will die. End of story. And what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? And in this story here, we see a powerful invitation to you and to me to believe in God as supreme and all-powerful. To believe in God as supreme and all-powerful. Listen to what these three men to say to the king. This king who was one of the king of the most powerful nations, the king who was going to execute them, who had their very lives in his hands, and they say, we don't need to defend ourselves to you in this matter. I mean, think of this. Shadrach, Meshach, give your head a shake. I mean, if, he, if you don't have to defend yourself to him, then who? Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonian Empire, the king who destroyed the great city of Jerusalem, the king who destroyed your God's temple, the king who killed Israelites, the king who captured many of your people, the king who is your king now, the king who will burn you alive. If he's not the one that you have to defend yourself against, then who? Who is the person, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you serve with undivided allegiance? And they say, we don't need to defend ourselves to you. If we are thrown into the furnace, the God we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us. These three men believed that God was supreme and all-powerful. Do you believe that God is supreme and all-powerful? Can God save? Can God act? Can God rescue? Can God do whatever he wants to do or are his hands limited in power and rule and authority in your life? Are God's hands limited in his rule and power and authority over this world that we live in? If you don't believe that he is supreme and all-powerful, then who has ultimate control, ultimate rule over your life? Who has ultimate control and rule over the world that we live in? The global economy? The leaders that are present today, maybe you say chance, it's all, it's all chance. How about yourself? Do you feel that you have absolute control of rule and authority and power over your own life? The answer to your question, to this question in your life, identifies who or what your God is. Who or what your God is. And this is an extremely important question for you to wrestle to the ground and get to a conclusion with. Because you see, as Christ followers of people who worship Jesus Christ, we live in faith and not fear. Every day, no matter what problems we face, what life situations we encounter, no matter how hopeless, how despair, how discouraging, no matter how broken, no matter what opposing power that we face, we live in faith that God is supreme and all-powerful and he is able to save. He is able to save. The God we serve is able to reconcile broken marriages. The God we serve is able to rescue people from horrible addictions. The God we serve is able to empower a man to live with joy and hope, even though the doctor has said, you will most likely die in three months. The God we serve is able to heal broken and damaged bodies. The God we serve is able to raise people 
back to life. The God we serve can, can take a calloused and hard heart and make it soft and humble again. The God we serve is able to forgive the darkest sin and make someone a brand new person. The God we serve is able to guide with supernatural wisdom. The God we serve is able to give spiritual gifting beyond what is humanly possible. And just by your very presence here in this room and your spiritual hunger and the fact that you want to become a fully devoted follower of God is proof that our God is able to save. Do you believe in a supreme and all-powerful God? And what evidence is there in your life of this belief? What evidence is there in your life of this belief that you have? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego lived by faith, believing that God was supreme and all-powerful, and so they could say, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us, and we believe that he will save us, O king. And then some of the greatest statements ever made by human beings. Verse 18. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. How is it humanly possible? What is going on in their human hearts and their minds to have the strength to say such a thing? You see, this passage of scripture invites you to believe that God is supreme and all-powerful, but it also invites you to live in absolute surrender to God's purposes in your life. To live in absolute surrender. What these men are saying to Nebuchadnezzar is, we serve the most high God and we have no naive illusions. We have no naive illusions about our fate here. We know what will happen to us, but we believe our God is able to save, and he will, but even if he doesn't, we will not worship your gods. What they're saying is, King, our lives here are really insignificant. They're insignificant. What is at stake here is our worship and our devotion and our submission to the Most High God with the totality of our lives. The totality of our lives. How can they say this? What is in their hearts that enable them to say this? Well, here's the key. Here's the key. Listen to this. These three men love God for who he is and not what he can do for them. These three men love God for who he is just by being God, period, and not because of God, what God can do for them or not using God to accomplish their own purposes. And a lot of times maybe you find yourself praying this way, God, I will love you so much more if you just do this one thing for me. I will sacrifice so much more for you if you do this one thing. God, if you do this one thing for me, I'm going to be so incredibly generous. God, I, I'll be faithful to my wife if you just do this one thing. God, if you do this for me, I'll do this. God, please, please, if you do this. If you love God for what he can do for you, then you're not living in absolute surrender to God. Instead, you're worshiping an idol. Because the highest priority in your life is what God will do for you. And you worship that thing instead of worshiping God just because he is God. And when times of decision come, you will not be able to say like these three men, even if God does not do that, I will still worship you. Instead, your response might be, God, if you don't do that for me, I'm not going to worship you. 
If you don't do that for me, you're not going to be the ultimate priority in my life. Church, do you love God simply because he is God? Do you love him for what he can do for you? Just imagine with me for a moment here, and maybe you've heard Satan speak these lies to you. Imagine what what Satan might be saying to these three men as they stand before the king. Satan might be whispering, Shadrach, Meshach, guys, you know what? Today's a bad day, but just live. Honor God tomorrow. Honor him tomorrow. Do what God wants you to do tomorrow. Maybe they might hear Satan say, God didn't rescue you from Israel, bring you all the way over to Babylon and set you in this high official status. You have influence and power. Live today, live, live, and and honor God, you know, with your position for the rest of your life. God will understand if you bow down. He'll, He'll understand. Maybe, you know what, these are pretty extreme circumstances here. Just, just live, live. These are lies. Lies, and maybe you've heard Satan whisper these to you in your times of decision and confrontation in our pluralistic society. We are asked and pressured and sometimes maybe even we want to elevate our desires and our purposes over God. We try to get out of painful situations or we chase after things that will make us happy, that will bring fulfillment into our lives, maybe things that we feel are in our best interests. And our culture pressures us all the time to live the same way publicly. These men are said, toe the party line. Bow down and worship. Don't be different. We hear the same in our culture. Keep your private convictions to yourself. Keep your private worship to yourself. Keep your, keep your private beliefs to yourself. Be all the same in public. And the invitation to you and I is to live absolutely surrendered to God and his purpose from our, for our life and not to conform to the beliefs and the values and the persuasion of our pluralistic culture that we live in that anything goes and there's many gods and do whatever you want. And it doesn't matter. There was a study done, a sociological study done on college-educated men between the ages of 18 and 23. 18 and 23, college-educated guys. And there were two groups of men. One group was raised to believe that sex outside of marriage was absolutely okay. There was nothing wrong with that. Guys were in this group. And there were other guys who believed, who were raised to believe that sex outside of marriage was wrong. That was not according to God and, and his plan for our lives. And sex outside of marriage was wrong. Two groups of guys. They were both surveyed. And what the results showed was that 72% of the men who were raised to believe that sex outside of marriage was wrong actually did end up having sex outside of marriage, 72%. And the men who were raised to believe there's nothing wrong with sex outside of marriage, go ahead, do that, live that way, 77% of them engaged in sex outside of marriage. 72%, 77%. Not a whole lot of difference. The results show that our culture has incredible pressure on conforming us to the same behaviors regardless of our own personal beliefs and convictions. And the temptation for us as humans is to thirst and long and strive after things that we think will bring us safety, comfort, happiness, fulfillment, satisfaction to our lives rather than living in radical surrender to the Most High God. So my question for you is, are you resisting? Are you resisting pressure from our culture to conform? to live in ways that are not God's plan for your life. If you're not resisting, if at times you don't feel incredibly uncomfortable with the way that your life is structured and the way you conduct yourself, if you are not feeling uncomfortable at times, 
If your life is not structured in such a way to push back on the influence of materialism and consumerism and pleasure-seeking, then you may not be living fully surrendered to God and what he wants to do in your life. See, today in much of the world, we may not often be commanded or invited to bow down to a person or an icon or a statue, but the battle for allegiance in our lives takes place in our minds and in our hearts. And the evidence for who or what our God is is displayed in the way that we live our lives. The evidence is there. Church, do you love God simply because he is God, period, no matter what? Do you live your life in absolute surrender to him? Trusting him to accomplish his purpose in your life? I would love to tell you that at this point in the story, you know, these three men standing in front of the king, and Nebuchadnezzar says, you know what? I just had a moment of illumination. I have got this all wrong, guys. You don't bow down and worship the king. We'll change the plan here. I'll melt down the statue. We'll use it to build schools and hospitals in the Babylonian Empire, and everybody will be happy. I mean, not a chance. Not a chance. Read in verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude towards them changed. And he ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual, commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes were bound and thrown into a blazing furnace. And the king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these Three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? And they replied, certainly, O king. And he said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. When you read the story carefully, it is clear that Nebuchadnezzar thought he was a strong king. Back in verse 15, he says, what God, what God is there who will be able to rescue you from my hand? And he's putting up his strength against God's strength. He thinks he's quite something, and so he exercised his strong strength, his might, and he heated this furnace up, not just normal hot, seven times hotter than normal. And he didn't get just the strong men in his army to tie up these Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but the strongest men to tie them up. And then the speed at which, at which this execution took place, when you read it here, it seems like it went very rapidly. It was a very quick execution, top speed, to the point that Nebuchadnezzar lost his own men in some of the process. And then Nebuchadnezzar looks into the seven times hotter inferno, which is the totality of all of his might, and he looks in there and he is shocked. Because he sees three men walking around and they're unharmed and they're unbound. But what's even more shocking is this. There is someone in the furnace who he did not throw in there. 
There's someone in the furnace who entered there of their own will and their own accord and their own desire even. There's someone who in there who has the power to withstand the instrument of the destruction of the most powerful king of the world at that time in history. And someone entered that furnace without no one even seeing someone who looks like the son of God. And scholars agree that this fourth person in the furnace is Jesus Christ himself coming to deliver these three men from their certain death. And in verse 27, we read that these three men emerged from this furnace. Not a hair on their body was singed. Not one piece of clothing was burnt. And they don't even smell like smoke. Such was their deliverance. They don't even smell like smoke. And what we see here in this story is an invitation to you. An invitation to live under the promise that Jesus will be with you. That God is near enough to be with you every moment of your life, all of the times of your life, and even especially in the most terrifying experiences of your life. Because the truth is that you and I will experience suffering. We will experience suffering. God delivered these three men from the furnace and he may or may not deliver you from your experience of pain or sorrow, a furnace-like experience of your life. We will suffer. God doesn't spare us from pain and sorrow and suffering and hardship. As well, he doesn't spare us from times of joy and happiness and elation. My friend Ashwin, a pastor here, preached a great sermon a few weeks ago asking the question, where is God when I'm suffering? Where is he? Where can he be found? And if you missed that message, I encourage you to go back or go on our website. You can watch it. It was just a couple of weeks ago. Jesus tells us himself, you will encounter suffering. John 16, verse 33, Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. Because I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. I want to read you one of my favorite passages of Scripture, one of my favorite verses, some of my favorite verses. And if you are going through a period in your life right now where you're experiencing pain, sorrow, it's terrifying for you, a place of suffering, I just want you to close your eyes right now. I want to read these words of God over you. And I want you to believe these words to the core of your being because they are absolutely true. Hear these words to you this morning. Isaiah 43. But now this is what the Lord says. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. The invitation to this passage is for you to know the reality that Jesus is present in your life. He's with you. And here's the thing, you will experience the presence of Jesus, the very real presence of Jesus in your life, in your pain and your sorrow and your suffering, to the extent that you believe that Jesus entered the ultimate furnace of God's wrath 
and judgment in your place as he hung on the cross to pay for your sin. You will experience Jesus present with you in your suffering to the extent that you believe that he accepted and took on the ultimate punishment, the ultimate agony, faced the ultimate furnace for your sin. On the night before Jesus was crucified, he sweat drops of blood because he knew the furnace that he was going to enter. He knew God's hatred of our sin would be directed towards him, and he would die because of it. And so Jesus willingly entered God's furnace for us. He prayed, God, take this from me, but if you don't take it from me, I worship you still as my God. And Jesus entered God's furnace so that we could be saved from eternal death, that we could be saved from eternal separation from God. And he died in our place so that we could enter a life with God. And God raised Jesus Christ back from the dead, which is why Jesus can promise, I will be with you because he's alive. At the end of this story, we read, Nebuchadnezzar really has no idea what he's saying, but he's speaking prophetically. Nebuchadnezzar says, no other God can save in this way, and he's right. No other God can save like God. No other God sends his son to die on our behalf. You see, every other world religion has a way of salvation. Every other world religion has a way of salvation. Every other world religion says, if you do good, if you live a moral life, if you do this, if you perform well, then you will earn your salvation. Then you will be saved. And if this is your belief, then what happens when suffering comes to you? You have two choices. You can either get angry and hate God and say, God, I lived rightly before you. I performed well. Look at all the good things I've done. Why is this suffering happening to me? You promised life would be different. I hate you, God. You can end up hating God or you'll end up hating yourself because you'll end up in despair and say, well, I should have done better. I should have lived better. I should have performed better. I should have obeyed better. And you end up hating yourself. See, every other religion, salvation is earned by good works performance and moral effort, but not the God revealed in the Bible, not Jesus Christ. Because if you're a follower of Christ, if he is Lord of your life, then when you encounter suffering in your life, then you say to yourself, the suffering that I'm experiencing right now does not even compare to what Jesus Christ suffered to pay for my sin and death on the cross. It doesn't even compare to that. And I'm suffering now not because of my sin, because Jesus Christ paid for my sin and he died in my place and my sin is taken care of and Jesus Christ has take care of, taken care of that. He had to endure the full pain for my sin and it doesn't compare to what I'm experiencing right now. I know Jesus is with me in my suffering. I live with God as supreme and all-powerful over my life. I live my life in absolute surrender to Jesus Christ for him to accomplish his will and purposes in my life. And I know that my suffering will change me to be like Jesus. That's how Jesus Christ's followers live. That's how Christians live. I want you to know this morning that Jesus is with you. That's a promise from Scripture. A promise from his, own, from, from, from his own lips. He wants to accomplish his purpose in your life. God is up to something good in your life. We serve a good God. Let's pray together. If you're here to, this morning and you are in a season of a furnace-like experience, sorrow, pain, hurt, there'll be some prayer partners up at the front here and we'd love to pray with you. 
I want you to know that Jesus is with you. And he understands more than anyone what you are going through. If you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ as your God, as your Savior, if you don't know what a life walking with him is like, if you haven't experienced the reality of his presence in your life, again, we would love to pray with you and introduce you to Jesus this morning. Now, as you go from this place, may God give you the boldness and the courage to stand in opposition to the lies you may encounter of our culture. May you stand with boldness and not worship any other God, but may God be supreme in your life. May he enable you to live your life completely surrendered to him no matter what. May he lead you in ways to glorify and make his name famous on this earth. May he expand his kingdom through your activity and through your words. May the Lord be gracious to you. May his face shine upon you. May he lead you by his Holy Spirit this week. In Jesus' name, amen.